It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Pat Philbin, president and CEO of Old Dominion Strategies. Pat is an experienced leader adept at building alliances and gaining cooperation with critical stakeholders on challenging organizational issues. He is results-driven with a demonstrated ability to acquire and manage scarce resources by leveraging partnerships and technology to resolve organizational challenges. Pat served more than 20 years in the U.S. Coast Guard, retiring as Chief of Public Affairs in 2004. He has extensive executive level experience in leading, managing, and participating in large-scale, high-profile events, including the loss of the Space Shuttle Challenger in the mid-1980s, mass migrations of Haitians and Cubans in the early 90s, the loss of TWA Flight 800 in Alaska Air, and the loss of JFK Jr.'s aircraft off of Martha's Vineyards, and dozens of other contentious and complex business and legislative issues associated with famous transformational following Hurricane Katrina. Pat holds a doctorate in communication from the University of Maryland, a Master of Business Administration from George Mason University, a Master of Science in Public Relations from Syracuse University, and a Bachelor of Science in Government from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. Pat Philbin, welcome into the corner office. Thanks, Brent. Glad to be here. God, great to have you here. And where are we catching you this uh, bright winter morning? Uh, we're kind of mid-December, getting into the holidays. Are you in warm climes, cold climes? You never know these days. You can't tell by location anymore. You're right. Uh, I, <laughs> my, my working out of a home office in Northern Virginia. Nice. Uh, so I've, I've, I've learned how to work virtually. <laughs> as we have all these last couple of years. And, That's right. uh, you know, I'm not sure the p- pandemic is all behind us, but uh, uh, certainly a lot of changes have been made over the years. And I'm sure we'll hear a little bit of that as we go through. But uh, we always like to start our podcast at the beginning and uh, focusing on kind of the early life of our guests. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about that mom and dad, where you grew up and what those early times were like. Sure. So uh, I grew up in South Georgia, a mm. town called Albany. Um, if you're from New York, I think they call it Albany. Uh, but I'm from <laughs> <Right>. Albany. Um, <laughs> and and uh, fairly humble, very humble roots. My dad was a college librarian. My mom was uh-huh. a public health nurse. Uh-huh. Uh, I I, uh, I often joke English is the second language for me because I think the first time <laughs> I left the state of Georgia except to go down in the panhandle of Florida was when I went to college. So, right. um, so since uh, uh, I spent my first 18 years there and when I went off to college, uh, never returned. Yeah, yeah. 
brothers and sisters. Um, I do. I have a younger younger sister who's an right. Irish twin. She's about yeah. 10 months younger than me. Nice. nice. And a younger brother who's five years younger than me. And uh, they live down south. Mom and dad went to college. Were they, you know, coming up through the those, you know, hollowed halls of education themselves? Or what was their educational background? Yeah, so my dad graduated, went to University of North Carolina, but I think he finished up at the University of South Carolina. Uh, and my mom went to a two-year professional uh, course in nursing. So she she went into nursing back then. They offered a two-year, uh, I think it was a certification program in, in being a licensed practitioner. So that's what she did and then went into the uh, public health side of nursing. Uh, as I was growing up. So I had two parents working um, yeah. and uh, pretty, pretty, a little bit of a non-traditional in that uh, dad did all everything mom did. Uh, they didn't have very defined roles. So I grew up uh, doing everything that traditional roles uh, would have you think, you know, uh, probably not. I did so dad, dad would prepare dishes. meals and wash yeah, and have around house. Cool. That's absolutely. Awesome. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I find that to be a little bit abnormal talking to peers um, where their parents' roles were more traditional and mine weren't. Uh, did a lot of camping, right. uh, which required a lot of support. Grew up around the water. My dad always had a boat. Wow, uh, nice. He had military service. I grew up with military and my yeah. uh, grandfather and all his siblings. So, uh, you, uh, if you were on time, you were late. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Get there ahead of time. What were some of the other memories you have from those early days? Have you thought about some of the influences the parents and grandparents had on you? Yeah, so I spent a great deal of time with my dad's parents. He was an only child, uh, strong military background. My grandfather was 30-year Marine, and they went 10-year civil service with him. Wow. We did a lot of camping, a lot of yeah. family time. Yeah. My dad walked away, I think, generally early from a what I understand was a fairly promising golf career because it just mm. took too much time away from right. the family. And uh, he was very committed to us. Uh, we, we camped almost every weekend. Nice. Uh, did a lot and of And it was fishing. mostly in the Georgia area? I mean, where, where would you go? Is it in the mountain regions or down the coastline? Or We went everywhere the from the, the north Georgia mountain regions yeah. to uh, all the way down to the Florida Keys at times. But wow. spent a lot of time yeah. down in the panhandle of Florida boating yeah. and Beautiful fishing. Beautiful down there. Like Destin, yeah. Pensacola, yes. kind of fact, that way. Yeah, yeah, they retired to Niceville. Uh, which oh, nice. Where that I is. learned how to ski right in Destin. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Were you a good student in school? You know, um, yes, for the most part. I can't say that I always was. Uh, right. I was an average student, I think, initially. And some of your questions sort of prompted me to think back. And I do remember <laughs> transitioning. I went to parochial school up into seventh right. grade. Right. And I begged my parents uh to allow me to go to public school because they had a f football program. So yeah, they let me go. And the first year was a bit of a transition. And I think I realized at the time I could, I should do better. Uh, and, and some of it had to do, I think, with the folks, uh, the peer group. So I realized if I was going to get anywhere, I needed to hand, you know, sort of uh, hang around a different peer group. And by the right, time I got right. into the ninth grade, I, I had figured it out. I, I was in the beta club, honor society, and and doing pretty well. We found stuff you like to do. I mean, I, yes. so often with, with kids and, you know, they get in subjects that just have no affinity for, and yet we still force them through that stuff. And you think, gosh, what a waste of time. You, you know, know, 
interesting uh, interesting comment you make because I think uh, our educational system I, I, I got a, a, a feel for this when we we were over at Oxford yeah uh, yeah yeah and right. and their system is really kind of interesting in the British system of uh, by the time you get to college you're essentially in a master's program I that's mean, right it really whittles they it down stream them very young and it's really much across Europe I had spent many years there as well growing up and usually at the ripe age of 14 or 15 you know they're either streamed into trade schools or they're identified as you know further high school potential or going into the higher level of university and you know at the time I remember questioning in my 20s thinking gosh you know that's making a decision so young but then you know why not <laughs> because we're, we're typically pretty formed by the time we're seven or eight years old anyway and uh, there's some validity to that yeah I mean to me, our system is a little backwards. Yeah. Uh, we try and put a lot of energy into helping improve people's weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. I have not found that to be very successful because, as my mom said, you can't push rope. Um, <laughs> smart, and she's right. Yeah, yeah. So if you play to people's strengths, they generally have a lot more fun and they do it much better. Absolutely. Absolutely. So outside of school, what type of activities do you pursue? You mentioned sports. Did you have a particular one you liked? I did. I, I, I played football initially, but okay. uh, I, I gravitated eventually primarily to tennis. Uh, okay. my, my mom was a bit of a tomboy. She grew up fishing <laughs> and playing uh, basketball and tennis and yeah. won state championships in those sports. So, and I, I never got wow. big enough to deal with, a, with our, our line, which was like average in 250. So I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm not a huge guy. So right, right. I decided tennis was a bit safer for me. <laughs> and I enjoyed it more, more importantly. Love it. Any entrepreneurial things you did as a kid, Pat? You know, uh, not really. Um, yeah. I worked to make money yep. Uh, yep. to figure out, uh, uh, to, to satisfy. I was in Boy Scouts, so oh, yeah. I did that till just under 14. And, and nice. there was some wonderful leadership opportunities there and I had a great time. I enjoyed it. Uh, melded well with my camping interests at home. Right, right. Um, but, but no, uh, I did jobs because... They gave me money. Uh, yeah, there you go. Help support things. Well, let's talk about what happened after high school. 20 years in the Coast Guard, you know, wonderful public service career. Now, did you go there right out of high school? Did you do some college beforehand? I know you obviously achieved many degrees afterwards, but just want to get that period of time after you finished high school. Yeah, so uh, I was able to take college courses, as many students are today, yeah. uh, when I was a senior uh, in high school, and, right, and right. the fact that my dad was at the local junior college allowed yeah. me to do that. So I had right, I had right. some college experience, but uh, it was sort of largely I I seem to recall it was largely on me to figure out how how I was going to get to college. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so my dad said, "Well, you can come to junior college." I said, "Yeah, great. <laughs> figure it out." Yeah. Exactly. Uh, right. So so then I started to apply uh, to various institutions, and uh, my my family's military background led me yeah. to, you know, some of the service academies. Right, right. And, and growing up a lot around the water, the Coast Guard was, yeah. uh, seemed very appealing to me. Right. Uh, so right. I applied to Navy, West Point, and the Coast mm -hmm. Guard Academy. Got it. Got did it. not get into Navy. Okay. Uh, I did get accepted at West Point. Right. And I'll never forget. Uh, but I wasn't terribly enamored with, with, uh, with that. Were, were your, was your father, grandfather, uh, Army? Marine, most of most of them were marines marines okay yeah yeah so you know so uh, yeah, we were yeah. sitting watching a ball game or something and i got a call from my congressman office asking me about west point and i hadn't quite figured i hadn't i hadn't been notified on the coast guard i said thanks but no thanks and my dad's 
this is the kind of guy he was. Who was that? I said, I was Congressman so-and-so's office. And they wanted to know if I wanted to go to West Point. And I said, thank you, no. And he goes, hmm, interesting. <laughs> I don't think he liked my response. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Well, what but, did he say? You know, I mean, that that's a pretty good response as a father. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, and, and I think that's sort of, we were allowed to express our opinions, yeah. I guess, or yeah. make our own choices, but we had to live with the consequences. Of course. Of course. Well, 20 years in the Coast Guard sounds like it became a career, at least the first part of it. So it was, you, yeah. you started um, patrol boats, right? I mean, wh- wh- how did you kind of enter? And tell us a little bit about, you know, give us that thumbnail sketch of that career. I, yes. First time I've spoken to someone who, who'd spent that many years in the Coast Guard. Oh, okay. So yeah. a wonderful organization, great yeah. culture, uh, yeah. went to the Coast Guard Academy. Right. Now, where is um, that? It's in New London, Connecticut. Okay, got it. And it's the only military service academy that doesn't uh, require a congressional appointment. So it's all competitively based. Right, right, right. Uh, Just like any college would be. Yeah, Yeah, so I I often joked I was the Georgia pick. I got lucky. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we have to new the first first trip on a plane was was going to connecticut no and kidding. Uh, wow wow and uh so i spent four years there graduated yeah. uh went to see most when i was in most uh early most uh, every academy graduate generally went to see at that point and right. i really enjoyed going to see yeah i was a weapons yeah. officer and then the second tour uh, you screen for command, so it's based on recommendation of your supervisors. And, and uh, uh, within two years out of the academy, I was commanding officer of a patrol boat and wow. doing a lot of work down wow. off of Florida and in the Gulf uh, and in the Caribbean area, uh, chasing drug runners, doing fisheries wow. enforcement, enforcement, search and rescue. Uh, and it was it was a lot of fun having that kind of freedom and independence. And I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Small crew. And you, you spent time, obviously, in the beaches, in the areas, your camping trips and so forth. So you had some exposure. And, and you've been, had you spent a lot of time out on the water? Did you know how to, you know, uh, uh, skipper a boat and have that kind of background as well before joining? I did, but they certainly uh, <laughs> upped you your game. <laughs> they did. Uh, you know, you learn how to navigate using celestial yeah. navigation. You learn how right. to handle vessels, going through ship handling school, and all those things that I enjoyed doing as a youngster. You know, I was I, I was doing it as a as a job, which to me was yeah. just terrific. Yeah, getting paid for it. How awesome. uh, yeah, exactly? Yeah. Wow. So I kind of fell <laughs> 18, into 20 it. years old. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So so you advanced through the career and and actually left as. Uh, uh, in, the, in the public affairs area, I think, right? Wasn't that your last job? And I did. was that a career path that you had kind of intended or how does it work, you know, in terms of advancement in the Coast Guard? It wasn't necessarily what I intended, but okay. on that patrol <laughs> boat back in 1986, which was my beginning of my second year, you may recall something happened at the end of January. Ooh, that's right. Yeah. With the loss yeah. of the space shuttle Challenger. And that's one right. of the missions that I... Uh, supported was security wow. off of Cape Canaveral. So I actually, mm-hmm. my patrol boat was the first one on scene. And so we had oh to gosh. take control of the initial search and rescue for that. And wow. uh, I think my first interaction with media was coming in. Uh, I was the first vessel from on scene mm. bringing a bunch of debris in. And and I looked out and there were just hundreds of reporters. And oh I was like, okay, I'm not sure exactly. I had this young Petty officer come up to me who was a public affairs specialist says, you're going to do fine. Hmm. Say what you know, no yeah. more. It's okay to say you don't know and, and just talk. 
So yeah. I walked out and they asked me questions and we have a really transparent, very forward leaning communication policy yeah. in right. the Coast Guard. And we always have, which is bad news doesn't get better with age one. And right. if you own it or have responsibility for it, then you can speak to it. So it doesn't get any more simple than that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that is something that I've carried with me throughout my other businesses that I've supported or, or run. Baptized in fire. Boy, the heavy heart that you must have had that day. So you were actually pulling a debris upon your on the boat to take it yes, back in. Yes, I was. Uh, yep. Wow. wow. Didn't expect to be there. Uh, yeah, but, right. Well, but, that's, that's uh, part of the job, right? You know, you step up and do what you have to do to, you know, not just keep our coast safe, but uh, the safety of others, uh, you know, that might have their difficulties on the sea. Yeah, from the absolutely. Air to the sea. Wow. So from there, uh, you did some instructing as well along the way. Tell us about, you know, kind of how your career progressed. Out of that particular assignment, I went to Syracuse and got a master's degree in uh, public relations. Oh, you did that while at the Coast Guard? I did. Yes. Yeah, so that was great. the first uh, degree I got. Um, and that was, they sent yeah. me full time. And actually nice. I was there. Uh, interesting. We just had the Pan Am, I mean the, uh, you know, the Lockerbie uh, bomb maker arrested. And right. I was, yeah. I had just left Syracuse after that in 1988 and went yeah. down to New Orleans to serve as a sort of a district public affairs officer and dealt with a lot of fisheries issues and oil and gas issues um, that the Coast Guard regulates. Um, from there... So wait a minute, let me get this straight. So you're a Coast Guard employee, you're getting yes. paid a full-time salary, and then they pay for you to go to Syracuse for two years. You don't have Coast Guard responsibilities during that time, and you Correct. study and get your master's degree. I did. I had two, <laughs> two, two young children at the time, and, oh and, and I had plenty of time to get my work done. It was really funny going to going to a school with folks who just couldn't figure out how to get it all done. They had no responsibilities. Right, right, right. no structure. Yeah. Wow. Well, if, if that doesn't say a lot about our United States government and the service opportunities that are there, God bless them, right? I mean, what a fabulous opportunity to do that. While you're oh, playing. absolutely. While yes, you're, while you're serving true. our country. Yeah. Yeah. So I went uh, from there, Syracuse, went down to New Orleans where I served as a, uh, what they call a district public affairs officer okay. supporting the Gulf Coast. So I knew the Gulf Coast. So that was a comfortable. And then after a couple of years there, I moved over to Mobile, Alabama, where I got a larger patrol boat, a larger crew. A uh, larger area of responsibility, and yeah. basically did the same thing. Newer vessel, yeah. which was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, nothing significant, other than we spent a lot of time in the very deep Gulf chasing drug runners uh, right. Right. on that tour. And then I went up to the Coast Guard Academy uh, on faculty, where Back to I London. yeah, New London, I, yeah, yeah. New London. I taught, and then I served as what they call as a TAC officer, a company officer, which is yeah. you have about a hundred. Uh, I think it's about a hundred cadets assigned to you on the professional side. And because I had a master's degree already, they let me teach uh, nice. over in the academic side, which was nice. And I was able to coach the tennis team. Uh, so <laughs> I had my hands, I uh, had my fingers everywhere. <laughs> I just had a great time, took the kids in all the time. And, and uh, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, just two years perfect. there, I got pulled out early and then basically spent I got pulled down to Washington, D.C., well ahead right. of my scheduled tour to take over chief of media because of right. my background. Right. They didn't have anybody right. qualified. So I thought I was going to retire up in Connecticut. Yeah. So did my wife is from Maine. She would have liked that. Yeah. Um, right. But right. needs of the service. So yep. I left early. You went where you had to go. 
Yeah. And uh, I arrived right in the middle of the mass migration of Haitians and Cuban migrants in the early 90s, 1994, wow. Wow. where I, I reported aboard. And 20 minutes later, I was over briefing folks at the Pentagon because yeah. we had everybody involved. Uh, spent three years. I got deployed as the exile of a larger ship, executive officer, which is the number two. Mm. Excellent. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. So normally operational, and then in, in the middle of my first patrol, uh, I got a call from a guy named Admiral Jim Loy, who had been selected to be the commandant of the Coast Guard, and he asked if I would return to D.C. and become his press mm. assistant. Wow. So did you? I, I have to ask you, Pat. Did you ever think? That back in 86, that that tragic day when you were the first, you know, literally man on the spot to come in and talk to public affairs, that that might have had an influence on the direction of your career, that maybe <laughs> that young petty officer put in some words every now and then about uh, your ability to, you know, meet the press, so to speak? Well, uh, it did, you know, the fact that I didn't screw up didn't. <laughs> right. But sometimes that's all it takes, right? <laughs> it, it, it's full of landmines, as you yeah, and I know it is. today. Absolutely. And uh, I, I, it's fascinating watching yeah, what's going yeah. on. Right, right. Looking back at that arc of your career, those first 20 years, those formative years, what, what would you say are two or three of the leadership lessons you took away from that at that time? Uh, so one... I learned from Admiral Jim Loy, which was preparation yeah. equals performance. Mm. Uh, I, I, so true. I joke, I never got a job I was qualified for. I heard that from somebody <laughs> once before. I said, you know, that's kind of right. But it forces you to learn, that's adapt. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I'm insanely curious about most anything. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're familiar with psychographic testing like mm. Strength sure. Finders, which we yes. use in our yeah. companies mm -hmm. or Colby, if you were to look at my resume and find out that I'm a, I'm, a, uh, I'm my, t my, I'm a learner. So that yeah. is my number one. And if you, right. if you saw me, you would go, does the guy ever not stop? No, <laughs> I just, I'm fascinated by knowledge. Three uh, books so, at your bedside table, right? Uh, yeah. I just like learning the about the world. It's right, uh, just insanely right. curious about things, which yeah, awesome. uh, has helped. So, and, and so that's one lesson I think, I, I had a lot of things happen in my career. I, not some not so great. Um, I had a supervisor who committed suicide when oh, I was down in Washington, which was horrible. And it was right around the time the chief of naval operations had done the same thing. So, oh again, another issue. But resiliency is really important. Uh, and if you're the one in charge, you have to sort of compartmentalize any any processing of that information, you do. You have yeah. a responsibility yeah. to your crew. So I think that's yeah. the, and then, and then probably the third thing I learned on my first patrol boat, which was I had a senior enlisted individual who was in charge of the engineering department, which uh, I had lost confidence in. Hmm. Um, so I, I asked my superiors to please remove him and have him evaluated for competency. He was my roommate also. Oh my gosh. Hard, so it was a little, it was a little uncomfortable as a 22 yeah. year old to go. Sure. You, you don't have, or 23, I guess I was uh, 24. Yeah, uh, yeah. You don't have, in my opinion, what it takes to lead people. Hmm. Um, so leadership is hard. Yeah, it is. That's right. But, but, but you owe way. it to your, those that you're leading to do the right thing regardless. Yeah. yeah, love it. Great stuff. All right. So back to my first question was making that shift. So, so did you fully retire? I know oh, yes. any 
you know, folks that, that leave at 20. And I, I got to tell you, as a recruiter, I love that first 20 year background because you get guys that are in their mid forties. They typically have 80, 90% of their pension. So they're taken care of. They got their healthcare and everything else. And they're so well-trained. I mean, they've got the leadership, they've got the knowledge, they've got the discipline. I love placing them, you know, regardless of where they are in their career. So were you kind of one of those guys? I mean, did they give you that option to retire with a full pension and all that kind of stuff or uh, they how did, did that work and, with those and, guys? And actually the irony is I put in my retirement letter the just before the morning, the 06 assignment panel or uh, selection panel came in. So I walked away from a promotion to 06. Oh. Um, uh, uh, it didn't sit all that well with my family. Um, <laughs> but I, I think maybe then I knew I needed to do, I wanted to do something, something different. Yeah. I love yeah. the, yeah. I love the coast. My classmate just retired last year as oh. the commandant. I love the organization. Right. It is wonderful. Um, but, I wanted to do something more and different. So, yeah, yeah. so I, I left and then I, uh, I went to work for a small uh, security firm uh, that was guarding uh, critical infrastructure mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for a short period um, before I, I got pulled up to do other things uh, or invited to do other things. So I didn't have to, I didn't have to leave, but I spent the last 10 years of my career basically working for flag officers, admirals. Right. And, and they really had very little control of their time. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the system yeah. does it for you, really. I mean, yeah, we have po- right. policies and procedures and, and systems and all these support elements in large organizations like that. And, and you really have very little flexibility over yeah, what you yeah. do when. Right. And, and that so that, that was, was that kind of, the, yeah, that was part of the motivation of looking on. And so, so what was that first CEO assignment that you had? Was it Subsidium? I know you founded another company, but. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, uh, so I started uh, Crisis One back in 2007. Right. And right. at the same time, I, I established a board of advisors and one of them was the, an owner of a company called Subsidium out right. in Front Royal. And, uh, I, I did so at the behest of my mentor, a guy named Larry Gaffey, who continues to serve as our CFO for our companies. Um, really sharp guy, very wise. And he just threw it out there because I had had an experience uh, as a political appointee under the oh. Bush administration at right. FEMA that right. did not right. end well. Um, mm. and, and I I really didn't have too many options. What I what I did learn from that experience was, uh, you can't. Uh, leadership is generally in short supply. You don't find many people that'll take bullets for their crew. Right, and I didn't join yeah. because of my political connections, but but my Coast Guard, you know, abilities and where I demonstrated yeah. that. Um, so I went in and led the external affairs effort after Katrina at uh, FEMA. Right. That was probably the most difficult job I've, I've ever had. We were getting probably a thousand int- uh, inquiries a week. So I, I managed the relationships with the Hill, the White House, the department, and all the people who were mad at us. <laughs> and there were a few. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, Thankless uh, job. It was. Job. So uh, I, from there, I, uh, I left public service and, uh, and started uh, Crisis One. Uh, quite yeah. frankly, because because yeah. of what happened, um, again, uh, things happen. Uh, so I learned there resilience is really important. Started yeah. Crisis One, had a couple of folks that were advising 
his board members, uh, and one of them who owned 51% of another company was struggling. So I said, well, I'll do what I can because I had a service disabled, have a service disabled uh, status. So I basically took over his company and I did a little bit of cleaning up. Uh, I had to go in and let some people go because they just weren't adding any value to that. And then continue to work uh, on my own to build Crisis One, which was... So you're doing both at the same time, Subsidium as well as Crisis One. Right? Correct. And it was, uh, uh, it's seldom an overnight success. I, I <laughs> primarily do government <laughs> consulting, which is, yeah. it's a, the barrier to entry there is pretty high. Yeah. Um, yeah. So based on that experience, I, I, I developed an interest in trying to help others avoid some of the mistakes I made through those right. years. Right. So I started in 2007, more legitimately in 2009. Um, but it wasn't until 2015 or 16 that I landed my first couple of contracts. And then they just, they came, I think I won three of them in a span yeah. of about three weeks. Wow. So it, it, it's tough breaking into that. Yeah. Uh, but once you get there, right. Uh, it's, you establish the credibility and yeah. yeah. And reputation. Well, tell us a little bit. About, so what do you do? I mean, a crisis one, typically does have an, you know, we kind of get the gestalt on that, but maybe you can give us a little bit more about, you know, what kind of crises you're currently handling. Yeah. So Crisis One was the first company I started and it was, it was established primarily and initially to focus on crisis management, crisis communication. But quite frankly, uh, my FEMA experience led me uh, uh, to pursue other efforts only because there, I mean, I was just being pragmatic about it. One, there isn't a, a tremendous amount of money in communications hmm. um, in the government sector, even though I've run a couple of agency public affairs shops. Right. And the other issue is my credibility was really called into question following what happened to me at FEMA. So I'm like, my, I got to just go do something different. So yeah. I started looking at things like financial management systems, uh, uh program management, project management, you can, um, studies and analyses. These are things that are pretty standard in government contracting. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there, there are three legs to the, the stool in government contracting. One, you got to have acquisition vehicles and two, you got to have a competency and, and three, you got to win the work. Right. So, uh, so I realized pretty early on that if I didn't have prime contract vehicles, I would always be relegated to being a subcontractor. And Mm. if you don't have privacy of contract and be the prime, then you're always going to have to deal with people who are frequently not consistent with your own core values. And so I, I said, look, I, unless I have to, I don't want to ever be a subcontractor. Um, And so my focus has been, how do I win prime contract work? To make yeah. sure that I don't have to sleep with one eye open at night. <laughs> right, right. Good way of describing it. <laughs> and how did you do that? Was it? What, did you leverage a lot of your contacts? Did you, you know, really just go deeper with the type of people you wanted to work with? Did you have, you know, yeah. um, social media strategies that got you there? What, you know, so how did for that somebody who well? for somebody who has a PhD in communication, I hate social media. And I, and I, <laughs> We're of and that it, age. Yeah. Well, we, well, yeah, but I also, um, because of what happened to me, um, yeah. I was, yeah. uh, I reflected on that. I was sort of like the canary in the coal mine, mm. um, because I was accused of doing something that, that quite frankly, I didn't do. And right. it cost me a career. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I had a, I had an appointment over to DNI that they rescinded as a result of this. I had wow. my university tried and revoke my PhD because of things I was accused of doing. And, and what, it, what struck me was, People don't even know me. 
They, they, they didn't ask me any questions. I had to fight my way into some of the conversation. And then, I, I, you know, just to have a conversation about what happened, but it was sort of the, you know, people in social media, a lot of researchers called it the wisdom of the crowds very mm. early. Yeah. When I was doing my PhD work, I was nervous about this because I said, no, we hang around others like ourselves. Mm. And that, that model only works if you're hanging around with people who are critical consumers of information right. and are, are, have a sense of values and what's, what's important and what's not and willing to listen. What yeah. you find, what, what I found through that experience was people, people don't care. They, if, hmm. if, if they didn't think, and, and mind you, who liked FEMA after Katrina? I don't know anybody. <laughs> no. So I was tar and feathered. My first public yeah. event was like two weeks after I report. I went back to my alma mater at Syracuse to take the stage on a presentation at Newhouse with a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer from the mm. Times Picune. Now, if you think that wasn't a hostile crowd, it wow. was. Wow. But wow. people didn't understand the mission or the staffing or any of that of the agency. I mean, they, they don't do things. They, they're the bank. That's they're, right. Yeah, they're, they're there to they're support. They're the framework, you yeah, know, and right, they didn't right. realize that the size of FEMA was smaller than some of the high schools in, this, in the area at Syracuse. <laughs> right, right. Goodness. Hard, tough stuff. Well, you know, out of uh, those types of situations, we gain strength and knowledge. We if do. you were to say two or three of those key takeaways from that FEMA experience that you've applied to now what you're doing, what would those be? So one was, uh, I think I'll, some of these are repetitive. One is resilience is really important. Yeah. Uh, know yourself, uh, right, know right. what your strengths are, play to them. I, I, I gained a lot of, uh, I have participated in a in an executive development program called Strategic Coach for hmm. several years. And yeah. Dan uh, Sullivan, who founded that in the early 80s, my entire senior team goes to that. Great. Uh, it is a, it helps me put things in context and it helps right. provide uh, intellectual property that helps us define where we're going and how we're going to get there and what we're going to do with our lives. So, yeah. um, so that's the other thing. And, and one, to make a difference, I think, uh, yeah make a difference in others' lives. And mm. I'm a, I'm a believer in karma. Yeah. Um, yeah. It'll come back to you. Yeah, that's right. The good and the bad. Right? Yes, sir. You know, yeah, it yeah. will. Yeah. So old dominion you purchased about five years ago, was that, you know, kind of a bolt on strategy? Did they have a specific area of expertise that you were trying to get? But what, what were the motivations behind that? Yeah, it was more pragmatic. They had yeah. a contract vehicle, uh, yeah. what we call a indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract vehicle that mm. uh, was relevant to the Department of Homeland Security called PAX-2. Okay. I tried to win that uh, with Crisis One. We did not. So right. I faced a, faced the choice of uh, the, the contracts I had under Crisis One were largely going to probably transition to PAX-2. So right. if I wanted to be the prime contractor and compete for my own work, I needed to go. Got it. Uh, acquire another company. Fortunately, I, other, word, other words, it would be more just transactional one offers, right? Versus that's, with the package. Yes, yeah. correct. And yeah. I don't like, yeah. I don't like transactionals. Yeah, um, no. But in this case, they only had one or two small contracts. So right. um, we, we bought it. Um, and I'm happy to report that we paid off the previous yeah. owners. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> that's great. good news. It yeah. was, and it was a really easy transaction because there wasn't yeah. a whole lot there. So that's wonderful. Right. Um, right. we built on the name and we, 
we we do a lot of work under the current PAX2 vehicle. Yeah. I think we're yeah. either number two or three in terms of revenue on that. And we've got uh -huh. probably 70 folks on that company, 75 nice. folks. Nice. So, um, and we do financial management, modernization, program management. We do some logistics type work. We do space. Uh, so it, it, it I, I gravitate towards things that tend to be more transformational. How are we going right. to help? our client do something, make the ship go faster. That's sort of all, all government contracts or do you do private sector as well in terms we of, we have done some private sector work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had a, a two year stint after my FEMA, roughly two year stint where I did some contract work for another, uh, company called peer systems. I don't okay. think it's in business any longer where yeah. we sold, uh, services and technology in the crisis communication space, right. uh, right. to others. But I've done some, some consulting in, in, pharmaceuticals and oil and gas. I mean, crisis management is crisis management. Yeah, it's, right, it's not right. rocket science in my view. Um, but well, getting others absent a, a crisis to understand what they need to do is a yeah. little difficult. Now, now, choosing the right people to do this has got to be important. You're growing now. You're obviously doing some hiring. Yes. What are your thoughts on, you know, when you're making bets on the people you want to invest in and hire? What do you look for? Yeah, so one of the things we, we look at uh, – and the older I get, the more important this becomes. I look for drivers, mm. um, but not just anybody who can drive. Uh, I, 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 uh, I'm a firm believer in uh, looking for people who are humble, hungry, and smart. Mm. It's, it's sort of a model of, it, it reflects my own view of humility. I, I uh, check your ego at the door. Cy Wakeman, Cy Wakeman produces some terrific stuff on this kind of issue, you know, reality-based leadership. But, but the reality is I look for people who not only are humble, hungry, and smart, but they get it, want it, and they can do it. So we, that's really the criteria is humble, hungry, smart, get it, want it, and can do it. And if we can identify activities I will tell you that I'm more important what a person – I'm more interested in when I interview people what they do on the weekends than I am mm. what they do during the week because that tells me what they're passionate about. Yeah, yeah. What so is I that do? what you ask them? Is, is that a favorite interview question? Oh, yeah, yeah. I want to yeah, know what yeah. – don't tell me what you do to deliver something because I right, can right. I can teach people generally or we can get you training to, to solve an issue, a problem. Right, what, right. What, I, what we can't teach is what my wife and I joke about called homeschooling. Do they have initiative? <laughs> Do they have the right attitude? Right, Do they right. come from the right core values? Are they Do curious? They, are, are they, they curious? curious? Yeah, Absolutely. To your point. Yeah. yeah. So for me at my level, I'm assuming when a person comes to me in the interview process, by the time they've hit me, they've checked all the technical requirements right. that the person right. can do the work. Right. I'm more interested in the future. What do you yeah. want to do tomorrow? How can I help you make your resume stronger tomorrow than it is today? And right. if I can right. do that, then the chances are, we're going to keep you a long time. And yeah, even if yeah. you go places, you're going to come back. And yeah, that's what right. we've seen. We, we have a retention Partly. rate well yeah. above 90%, which is wow. pretty unheard of in the government space. Yeah, that's awesome. So money's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. What about cultural fit? How do you, how do you kind of interview for that? What's your, you know, kind of your litmus tests for that? Type so we have, um, we, we have a mission statement, which is make <laughs> success possible. So that means yeah. for our people, for our families, our communities, our clients. And so we look for demonstrated behaviors that would affirm their interest in helping others. Yeah, yeah. So that to me is, a, is an indicator. We, we created something called a Vivid Vision Award that we, hmm. we hand out a monetary awards to folks who we find that are not only doing the work, 
that's necessary. But what are you doing in your community? How are yeah. you making lives better for others? And so yeah. rather than own, I mean, I do it, but I think it's a very personal choice. If you're, if you're doing something good for another organization or an individual that, that's helping them grow, that to me is, is why we're here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a legacy issue for me. Uh, I'm not getting any younger. And to me, uh, if you can help somebody that has a bias to that, I can't push rope again, right? So I yeah, can't want right. something more for others than they want for themselves. But yeah. if I can find somebody who just needs a little help, I can, I can see the, the attitude is there and the initiative and the drive and the motivation. I, I will take a chance. And, yeah, and we do. That's great. Well, we're just about out of time, Pat. We always have one last question we ask all our guests. And that's what kind of life and career advice you'd give to someone that perhaps has their eyes on their own corner office someday. I think uh, always be humble. Uh, Mm. Never. Humble, hungry, and smart, right? Let's list all three of those. Yeah, but never lose (laughs) sight of what got you to where you got, in my view, is, is, uh, you know, I'm a huge believer in personal responsibility and accountability let's make better decisions let's 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 be let's focus on what you do really well there's somebody out there that does what you don't do well really well mm-hmm. and i love building high performing teams yeah, so yeah. you may not have the full suite of things but if you can contribute to a high performing team i'm a firm believer that one and one can equal 11 yeah. i'd much rather have an average group of performers give them to me any day that yeah. that have the right attitude and initiative and motivation right. because because my observation at least in the athletic realm is uh, you find teams that are loaded with with superstars yeah but they don't know how to check their ego at the door That's so right. get rid of the ego yeah. I, yeah. I i i take right. out trash i i talk right. to people i'm you, be nice to the janitor yeah they have a you saw your dad your dad cooked you meals right i mean right, right? You, I, you, I, you I know that sounds really simple but <laughs> no it's important yeah it I is it. yeah, yeah. Well, so Pat it's not Philbin. technical. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just being human. Being a, being a good person, right? When yes. it comes down to it. Well, Pat Philbin, uh, President and CEO of Old Dominion Strategies, as well as President and CEO and founder of Crisis One, thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you very much for having me, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 